Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Doomer Optimism Podcast. This is Anarcho Contrarian, or AC for short, and I'm here tonight with Nate and Josh, and we're having sort of a uh, a co-host circle tonight. There's no special guests. It's just the three of us. Um, and I, I think what we're going to do is sort of do the podcast uh, version of my favorite Twitter activity, which is nostalgia posting. <laughs> yeah. And so we're, we're going to get into a little bit of um, <laughs> the, the formative years for the three of us. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, how we how we grew up, our, our interface with our grandparents specifically, which is kind of how this um, conversation came about. It, I think it was prompted in somewhere in a thread of tweets um, with Nathan, Josh, and myself. Um, and, you know, we certainly have had lots of uh, based mommy discussions uh, on Doomer Optimism, but we haven't really had like uh, the based grandparents version. And, and we figured maybe why not, uh, why not have that conversation? I think we each have unique stories to tell. And um, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I was thinking for table setting. I don't know, Nate, since, since, like I said, you sort of initiated this, if you had some thoughts about, you know, where you wanted this conversation to go. Well, I mean, there was a couple of things, you know, one, like the, the idea sort of hatched and, you know, like it just popped into my brain. I'd seen that you had posted something a week or so earlier about um, just, you know, admiration you had for your grandfather. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, think of one grandpa in particular. I just kind of jumped on it. And then later we were talking and as much as anything, I thought it would be fun to just get together with the two of you and talk about stuff. And so um yeah i thought it was just a cool opportunity for that but then also you know i think i'm going to tie this now into the sort of uh attention boomlet that comes with uh you know wendell berry releasing two books here this fall one's out and one's going to come out and i'm a tremendous fan um and you know he talks a lot about like actually it's fundamentally what he talks about is a uh, community and, you know, I do also all this sort of hippie posting, you could call it uh, sort of my, one of my favorite activities on Twitter. But a lot of that is really because it was such an interesting time. I think in our parents and grandparents generation, there was just this splintering thing that, you know, I think that happened then. Um, and, and there were so many different threads that came out of that, um, you know, and a lot of, uh, a lot of hard feelings that have lasted decades and, you know, just seeing that in previous generations and then seeing how communities have just kind of over the last 75 years sort of drifted and come apart and come undone. And I just kind of thought it would be fun to talk about that in the context of our actual lived experiences with people that we've known. Um, so that's sort of the, the big picture, just sort of where my mind was going with this and how I thought it might be a fun conversation to just sort of have and see where it goes. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's funny, funny that you say that. So I obviously as well am, am a, a Wendell Berry super fan. And I actually first got turned on to Wendell Berry when he was referenced in a, in a book that um, featured uh, my family's farm. It's, I don't want to sort of dox myself, but, you know, a, a regionally written book about, about family farming and the fate of family farms over the past several generations. And and there was uh, somewhere in that book uh, a reference to Unsettling of America. Um, and I totally went down, you know, I was like, who's this guy, Wendell Berry? I totally went, totally went down that rabbit hole. And that was probably, you know, 2000, 
six or eight maybe. Um, and, um, you know, it kind of comes uh, full circle. So I went deep down the Wendell Berry rabbit hole and, you know, his, his essays, of course, his, his novels, of course, and then his poetry. And I actually, I read um, Testament, which is one of my favorite poems uh, by Wendell Berry at my, at my grandfather's funeral. So uh, it's just sort of full, full circle, right? I was introduced to Wendell Berry, you know, um, sort of being nostalgic about the farm that I grew up on and which entailed my grandfather, obviously. And, and you know, I read a Wendell Berry poem at his funeral. So, so full circle. Um, so I, I would love to, I would love to have this conversation. I'll try not to uh, get get emotional. That might, might be difficult for me, but um, you know, I think, I think what you said, you hit the nail on the head. Like we, we have lost a lot, um, you know, between our grandparents heyday and our heyday. And, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about, what's happened and, and maybe use it as inspiration for the Doomer Optimist Circle. You know, what can we learn from our grandparents um, and adapt going forward? So, you know, maybe we can start the conversation like, uh, you know, thinking about it in terms of time and place. So, you know, what, what, uh, maybe we'll start with you, Nate, like what, what were your grandparents' heyday? Like give us, give us a, a decade or, or a series of decades that, you know, you felt like you interfaced with your grandparents' The most formatively, where was this? You know, give it, give us the background, like put us in the time and place. Oh, well, it was definitely, you know, the 80s. I was born in 1977, right? So, um, you know, it was like the 1980s or what, you know, that was what I remember most as, you know, with, with my grandparents when I was young, you know. And, um, you know, I, um, my mom's parents, um, were um i felt a little closer with them you know that was my uh grandfather uh wayne grandmother was myrna and they were um lived on the farm yeah and my dad's parents lived in town um ed and claire and they were a little more cosmopolitan you might say and this was uh, charleston illinois um so <laughs> little town not that cosmopolitan <laughs> um but it's a little college town in, in central illinois and um my grandparents lived in Raritan, illinois um which was a town um that in my mind i liken a lot to a whole lot to port william it just seems like port william to me um and when i read when i read that i'd like easily when i read his port william stories I always just kind of easily translated it to that because it just feels like a similar time and place like a little little tiny town and the name of that town was Raritan, and my family name is Raritan, you know, so it was named after my forebears, and um, the um, the home where, uh, you know, the home place was uh, my grandparents' house, which was on a, a little hill right outside of the town, and it was, you know, spent a lot of time there, you know, and I was the oldest cousin in that family, um, I just spent all kinds of time there. Now, we lived an hour and a half away, so it wasn't um, wasn't a daily, like it wasn't involved in daily life. It was, you know, occasion, you know, holidays or, or just visits. Um, but it was always a bit of an occasion when we went up there. Um, and I just have, you know, a ton of, of memories up there, um, of doing stuff, you know, a lot with my grandpa in particular, you know, just doing the, um, cause it kind of, he was that sort of guy that you, I mean, a, a young boy is gonna, um, really be drawn to you know like did the kind of stuff yeah you know he he took us fishing and um um went out and just tagged along i remember we did um 
he had a place um, at the home place. And then they had like a little satellite area of farm that was by the river, the Ambra river. And um, he used to go there. He had a little camper there, which I didn't know, but I think I found out later that that's also the little camper was where he went and where he kept his whiskey and where he went, <laughs> I think <laughs> nice. away from grandma where, because uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, loved each other a lot, but they often, I think, didn't get along that well. So he had his camper where he would get away. Um, but we'd go there, and I didn't know about the whiskey. So he was at least, you know, and I was pretty, you know, innocent of those things. Um, but we'd go, and he had a John boat out there in the river and run trot lines. So we'd go and pull out big catfish out of the out of the river. And, um, you know, and I remember riding his uh, uh, Ford tractor, driving the tractor, th- you know, just things like that. You know, and he was a... He was on a farm, but he had kind of, he was moving away. He wasn't really a farmer. I mean, he was, he was a farmer, but it was like moving in the direction of not being a farmer because he was primarily worked off farm, you know, and he was a railroad engineer. Hmm. So that was another cool thing when you're a kid, right? Like your grandpa sure. <laughs> can take you and he's like, Hey, let's go ride on the train. Here's the controls. You pull that lever, do this, hit that button. It's like, Oh yeah. Well, how does if I mash this one is like pretty, pretty awesome. Um, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I remember those. That was pretty, pretty great. And, um, but that was his, I mean, he was, he was railroad engineer, so he was, um, uh, off farm a lot for that. And I remember, uh, hit, um, I didn't, by the time I came around, they didn't, I don't think he farmed at all. I think, uh, you know, my mom grew up, they had goats, they had sheep, no, not goats, they had sheep and they had pigs, um, uh, and, you know, did some of the livestock and, I sometimes feel like I channel my grandpa now because he was kind of a cranky guy. Like he was like one of those, he, he was pretty cranky. <laughs> you know, he, he was pretty short, had a bit of a temper. It was never directed at me, so it didn't bother me, but you could see it sometimes like, oh wait, yeah. I mean, he was, he was kind of cranky, you know, a, a quick Irish temper. And, um, uh, but yeah, so, you know, these are all really, yeah, fun things to think about and, um okay it was really idyllic yeah that's a that's a good start so like um so your interface with him and and on the farm was was sort of like summers holidays that that type of thing i think you said you were like an hour and a half away or so okay okay and that was your maternal maternal. and my grandma had a camper so they'd come down by us too and we'd go out at the lake in a camper so that, that was another yeah thing we always did got it cool Okay, I think that's a good start. What What about you, Josh? Do you want to Do you want to share us a share with us a little bit about your grandparents and and your interface with them as a kid? Um, <clears throat> sure. Uh, one question I had starting out was hmm. um, just for us sharing and stuff. Do you guys have grandparents that are still alive, or has everybody died? Both of my grandmothers Don't. are still alive. Both your grandmothers, mm-hmm. Nate. No, they've all they've all passed away at this point. Okay, I still have one living granny, so the other three are gone. Uh, but I got still one living granny. Um, yeah, I guess I could share a quick um, anecdote about my maternal grandfather. He died. He he died, you know, relatively young. He he died when I was ten years old. He had a stroke and and um, and and died. But, um, so I don't have a lot of like really, you know, sophisticated 
type memories or, or anything associated with him. But what one of the things I remember was when he would come to visit, he would always take me to go down to the creek in my neighborhood and play in the creek. And my mom would always say, don't you go play in that creek. Don't you go play in that creek. And her, she was probably right because I think the creek was probably like 50% at least wastewater. Like it was it, 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 <laughs> actually wasn't a good place to play <laughs> but I, she probably had a kind of conspiracy with with her dad my my maternal grandfather you know that when he came to town and would visit or whatever i could go play in the creek and we would go down there and do all the things you weren't supposed to do like catch crawl dads and find old pieces of broken glass and do all the kind of like little adventures that like an eight-year-old boy thought were totally amazing Right. Mm -hmm. He was this like lanky older guy, you know, totally bald on top with long limbs and long skinny feet that were probably like size 12 or 13 or 14 or something like that. And he would take me down to the creek to, to turn over rocks and catch crawdads and look for turtles and play with broken glass and find whatever sort of contraband you might find <laughs> in what's basically like a wastewater ditch in, a, <laughs> in West Virginia, you know, and then we would come back, you know, covered in muck and all this kind of stuff and we'd be really hush hush and like, no, 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 we didn't go down to the creek. We didn't go down to the creek, <laughs> you know, totally covered for me. And to my eight year old self, I think like that was, that was like really amazing, you know, like mind blowing that we were in on this secret. And, and we totally fooled my mom, right? <laughs> That's awesome. And how, so how, how far, like, what was your proximity, Josh, with your grandfather? A couple hours or close by or? So, no, by that time, so I grew up, I grew up in a town in West Virginia. And by that, so my grandfather, my maternal grandparents, they actually lived in Toledo, Ohio at that time, even though they were West Virginians. They had moved to to actually to northern Ohio. And my grandfather had, I, I don't even know if this kind of thing really exists anymore, but he was like, he would have been a kulak, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. he, like where he worked his way up from Wayne County, like dirt bag, white trash, poor West Virginia, up to essentially Midwestern Kulak. And he ran a food distribution, a small food distribution company for General Mills. So that was another cool thing when we would go to visit them and he would take me to his, so we would go in the back, you know, and they've got the big walk-in coolers and they get in the bulk vegetables and stuff like that. And he's got like all these like ladies that come in and they make the giant tubs of potato salad that they sell to restaurants and stuff like that. And they got the guys driving in with forklifts with pallets of this and that and the other thing. And so he was like, yeah, I guess he was like a sort of middle level Kulak manager guy or whatever for General Mills. And that's what he, that he worked himself up to, to that point. And I was real fascinated by this like little, little business that he had. And I think like, I mean, I think all this happened before I was really old enough to, to know anything, but I think that there were like shady business deals and all this other kind of stuff. And I think by the end he had kind of lost out, like he had kind of, you know, was at the wrong end of some kind of thing or whatever. Mm. Some, some kind of thing that they hide from the kids in the family. 
So like, I don't really know. I can't report on any of the details or that kind of thing. It's the kind of thing that the family's ashamed of and they don't talk about and, and whatever, but no, we used to, it was a big deal. And I remember as a kid taking, it was like a, it was a major trip. Like for us to load into the car down in West Virginia and drive, it was about a six, six, six and a half hour drive or something clear across the state of Ohio to go up to the Northern part of the state for, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas and for other holidays or whatever and, uh, and go visit them. And the, the thing that was so funny to me was that I, I, the other thing that my grandfather did was he went around to, as part of his food distribution business, it was back when they had meat markets, like where there were like, you know, like shop, like butchers, right? Like remember like butchers where they would get meat, <laughs> cut it up, produce it into cuts of meat. And then they would sell it to grocery stores. And there were people who managed all that. And so I remember going with my grandfather, I was a little, I don't know, I was six or eight years old or whatever, going from my grandfather to these, to these uh, butchers and there's like sides of beasts. And I was like, oh, the meat markets, they smell so bad. I hate them. Ah, you know, and having all the reactions as a little kid. And <laughs> the thing I remember is all these people in Toledo, Ohio, making fun of me for my accent, you know, it's saying like, are you from West Virginia? Like, <laughs> and they're like, ah, oh, it's written all over your face. And I'm like, man, these people are psychic or something. How the hell do they know that I'm from there? So, was your grandfather part of like the uh, the migration, if you will, like West Virginia, Appalachia to Ohio, like the JD Vance uh, described uh, migration? He may have been. I, I still haven't read JD Vance's book, so I don't know the details of that. Mm -hmm. I, I know that, and, and you know. This is probably something I should look more into because it's certainly more of like a formalized phenomenon that I'm aware of. I'm certainly aware of members of my family, like going north to, to, to Ohio and Detroit and other places like that, looking for jobs, looking for economic opportunities and all this kind of thing. Mm. So probably, so, I mean, my, my dad was the same way. My dad got out of high school, went into the Navy and then came back and, and had various jobs and stuff like that. So Probably that's the case, but nobody ever posed that question to me before, so I never actually like researched hmm. it. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Cool. Okay. Um, I yeah. guess I'll I'll go um, next. And it's sort of I love I love thinking about how I grew up because the way I grew up uh, is really really special. And you know, um, stop me if it stop me if I'm rambling or, or feel like I'm bragging a little <laughs> bit. But uh, you know, again, as I said, like nostalgia posting is my favorite thing ever. So um, I grew up uh, in very much a multi generational uh, setting in rural New Hampshire. So um, I grew up with my parents, my grandparents, and what I what I considered always considered my great grandparents, although they weren't technically my great grandparents; they were a few removed. So, them, they, uh, my great grandparents, quote unquote, um, were European immigrants to New York City, and they worked in the restaurant uh, industry in New York City. They were uh, a chef and a waitress. My grand great grandfather and great grandmother, and they. Uh, wanted to retire in the 50s. They wanted to get out of the city. They wanted to buy a farm. 
and uh, they learned of a piece of property in, in central New Hampshire, uh, a, a farmer that wanted to give up the business and, and get out of his farm and, and they picked it up, but they didn't know, you know a damn thing about farming, uh, being mm-hmm. in the restaurant industry in New York City. Um, but they knew that they had uh, like a, a nephew twice removed, which is my actual uh, maternal grandfather um, who was in Europe uh, dur- during wartime. He was in the, uh, an agricultural school. Uh, during wartime, and, and you know, his job was to learn agricultural and really feed feed wartime Europe. And th- so they wrote to him, and they said, you know, hey, we need, you know, basically a, what amounts to like a foreman. We need somebody to help us, you know, establish this farm. We bought this derelict farm in central New Hampshire, and, and we don't know a dang thing about it. So we need your help. And, and he came over in the mid fifties. Uh, immigrated uh, here and didn't know, you know, lick of English. Um, and was fairly young in his twenties, I believe. Um, he had worked uh, on a farm in Switzerland at the time before he came over, and he was, you know, sort of courting the, the, the rancher's daughter, the farmer's daughter, uh, who ended up uh, being my grandmother. He, you know, he wrote to her and, and had her come over a few years uh, after after landing in New Hampshire and starting up the farm. Um, so, so they got married. They were establishing this farm with with my quote unquote great grandparents. They were living in the same house. Uh, you know, if you can think about you know how potentially awkward that that would have been at the time, but they were living in the same house, this old 1800s farmhouse. Um, they had three kids, one of which uh, was my mother. She was the oldest, and two boys. Um, my mother got mar- married fairly young uh, to my father and had me. I'm the, I'm the oldest of, of my siblings and the oldest of my cousins. So similar to you, Nate, um, I'm the oldest cousin. Uh, there were six of us cousins that grew up all together. So if you think of very, very rural place in the hills of central New Hampshire, uh, you know, a big sweeping bend on an old country road, you know, right at the elbow of the bend is the farm. It's in, you know, it's, it's set in, in the shadow of a, a mountain. And, you know, it was basically um, my, my parents' house where I, where I grew up, my childhood home, my uncle and aunt's house with my cousins next door, my great uncle's house who came to live on the farm in his retirement years, then my grandparents in the farmhouse, then my great, my, my uh, other uncle and aunt uh, just passed them. And then my paternal grandparents were right after that. So like, boom, like five, six houses in a row, like my entire family. Um, and mm. um, so that that's kind of like the setting, if you think of it, uh, you know, so I grew up, certainly, you know, I was the oldest of all my cousins, as I said, of, of at least four or five, four years, uh, five, four years, sorry. Um, so, you know, for the first four years, I had like the run of the place, you know, I was like the first first born kid and, and I totally had the run of the place. My mother was still milking on the farm. So it's a dairy farm. I didn't mention that the dairy farm. My mother was milking. So I, I got raised basically by my mother, my grandmother and my great grandmother, um, you know, until I was by myself until I was four years old. And then all of a sudden the rest of the cousins started coming. And, and eventually it was like six of us, six of us cousins in the farmhouse um, for meal times, like basically, uh, you know, breakfast and lunch every single day in the farmhouse with my my great grandfather again, quote unquote, had passed at that time. So it was my great grandmother, my grandfather, my grandmother, my two uncles, 
and six of us kids like at the at the at the breakfast table every every single day certainly in the summertime when we weren't at school and stuff like that um and and yeah so my my grandfather was like was an amazing guy right so he's an immigrant he, he literally taught himself you know english as the, as the story goes at least like by reading the funnies in the, in the newspaper um he took what was a chicken farm when, when he, you know, came, came to this country and he hated chickens and, and didn't want anything to do with a, a large scale chicken farm. So he, he converted it to a dairy farm and can't believe him. yeah, no, no kidding. Like nobody wants to deal with that many chickens. Um, he, uh, I mean, this, this sounds like unbelievable, especially like thinking about it in the modern context, but he basically took uh, what was like a hundred acres of swamp and turned it into a hundred acres of cornfields. Like he basically um, dug all the drainage ditches to to drain this hundred acre swamp uh, into a, a crop field. Which I mean, think about think about how much trouble you'd be in today if you if you just went out and did that. Like you could do that in the fifties <laughs> and sixties, right? Um, he, you know, he, he basically terraformed this, this uh, 300 acre farm, you know, in, in a few decades of his life, like within, you know, by the time I was born, this, all this stuff was established, you know, I was born in the, in the early 80s. So between that, you know, mid 1950s and 1980s, he set up this farm. Um, that was, that was truly amazing. So um, that's kind of, that's kind of like the, the, the setting, um, if you will. And, you know, I, I live, like I said, I live pretty much every day, certainly in the summertime when I wasn't in school at the farm. Like that's just, you know, what I did. It was right, right next door. Um, and I certainly worked, I, I worked a ton. So, you know, by the time I came around, certainly by the time like our cousin and me and the cousins were, you know, all running around, my grandfather was basically like retired, quote unquote, which basically meant like he wouldn't get out of the tractor, <laughs> you know, uh, to do any, any manual uh, labor anymore. And he um, set up like a hobby petting zoo. Um, so we, you know, they had the dairy business. That was the, the income generating. And like for fun, he couldn't, could never sit still. So for fun, he set up like this aspect of the farm that was basically a petting zoo. I mean, um, emus, uh, alpacas and llamas, mini donkeys, uh, uh, potbelly pigs, uh, you, you name it. And then he set up museum with like four bays, uh, four garage bays worth of antique farm equipment and so on and so forth. Like he just, he loved novelty. Um, and people from, you know, from all around would come to the farm to, for free, just roam around and walk and pet, pet the pigs or whatever, and check out, check out the, the, um, the museum. And, uh, and yeah, so like in a lot of ways, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, in the 1980s and nineties, like my formative years, like I was, I was living the way people, you know, in the early 1900s lived. Like I had both grandparents, you know, accessible to me. You know, I had all my cousins, aunts and uncles accessible to me. Like it was a very hands-on um, environment. Um, and that's what, honestly, to tie it all into like doom or optimism, like that's what makes me optimistic. Like everybody thinks like, oh yeah, that was so long ago. Like that type of stuff's never coming back. And like, for me, that was, that was, you know, that was 30 years ago. Like, it's not that, not that long ago, you know, if it was that close to me, like we can do something like that again, you know? Um, so, so that's, that's my, that's my quick story. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's a beautiful story. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. It's, it's kind of it's kind of different, right? Um, and and I I you know I sort of try to use <laughs> my Twitter account, you know, a lot in a lot of ways. It's kind of like the nostalgic aspect of it is like my sort of therapy, you know. Um, like my entire life, you know, went from like this very idyllic, very small scale, very hyper localized setting. So like, you know, now I work a white collar job, uh, three hours, three hours from there, from where I grew up, you know? Um, mm. and so I use, you know, I use my Twitter account to like sort of stay in touch with, you know, uh, that aspect, but also to like, you know, uh, evangelize a little bit again, getting back to what I was just saying, like that is close at hand. And for me, like it could, it could be close at hand for other people. If you choose to live this way, like if you choose, uh, to live that way, you can, uh, you can get there pretty easily. So anyways that's enough well the the uh the longing comes through you know from 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 you from your twitter account for sure like the longing like it's 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 that's a word i definitely describe you can because there is you know the nostalgia posting and the way that you're clearly so in love with you know the way you grew up and what you've known and and sort of the longing for that just like really um radiates through um and, you know, as you were talking, man, my mind went in a million different directions. One of the things that I wanted to jump on for just a second, you know, you said this multi-generational living arrangement. And that was one of the first things because, you know, we moved back here to the farm um, like we, a decade ago. And we lived in the city in Denver before. So you're like, you know, 14, 15 hours away. And, you know, you live in the city like that and, you know, the people you know are other people that you like work with or had met. Um, but it's like, you know, people your age, you know, and then, you know, they had, you know, we know people with other young kids or maybe they hadn't had kids yet, or maybe the kids were a few years old, but that was it. Right. You work with people who were, you know, in my case, anywhere from late twenties to mid forties um, with kids around. And like, this is the people that you saw, you know, we moved back and, you know, immediately it was, you know, this whole, multi-generational uh thing opened up you know our um you know there's grandparents around first of all um and at the time my parents still lived a few hours away they they now live up here but they lived a few hours but we still saw them more but her her emily's parents were right here um and she still had um, her um grandmother zella still lived uh was still alive um up until about up until two years ago and it, this is her farm zella's farm um that we live on now and we came back and you know she you know had it and no one was living here and so she said you know the house you know you can you can come here and stay and you know and, and we that was sort of how this all came about um and we said okay but we have some conditions <laughs> and we were able to work all that out but um uh and, but we moved here and so there, there there's these people and then our neighbors who uh and this was one of the, just a completely unexpected delight they, they actually lived in town um in town like a little bitty town about six miles away but they had a farm so they were neighbors they lived their their farm was neighbors and 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 they were down you know at least he was down every day um horse guy just a big horse guy and so I, I, we got to know him one of the sweetest, kindest um, men I've ever known in my whole life. You know, at the time he was in his early eighties and just a, a, just a sweetheart. And, you know, they, he and his wife, they loved the boys and we just got to know him. And I struck up a friendship with him and I hadn't had like a friendship with an, with, with someone that age was just completely new to me, completely new to me. Like 
not a thing that had ever happened in my life ever. Um, you know, other, you know, my grandparents, but like, other than that, like an actual, like a friendship, um, and it was beautiful. And he was a, he was a sweet guy. And so I went down there, I started going down there like every week on Fridays. Um, and he would teach me about horses. Um, and, and we tried kind of not very successfully uh, to, um, train, to train a horse. He was going to teach me how to train. I, I don't think I was that great of a student and we couldn't, um, quite put it all together, but we ha- had a good time. And so we saddled up the horses and I'd ride and we'd, we'd hook them up cause he loved to, ha- to hook them up. And, um, and, and my grandmother who was still alive at the time loved horses. So she'd come, she came up once too. And we, we gave her a, went over and Stanley hooked all the horses up and we, we gave my grandmother a ride and, um, just this really neat thing that immediately upon moving back, you know, the boys have access to generations. They have access to, to kids that are, you know, significantly older and, you know, grandparents and great grandparents. Um, and Zella was, a, a you know, just a, a, a heck of a character and a, and a pretty amazing woman. Just so the, it, I think it just enriched, it has enriched their lives tremendously and, and became really apparent how freaking weird it is to live without that. Like it's, it's this bizarre thing. Like, and it's like this extension of, I mean, I, I also tangent, I won't go on it, but like, um, it's also like, it's a remnant of like how weird I think our school is where you get like a bunch of kids, the exact same age. And they spend time, like you, you just spend so much time with people, your own age. And it's weird. Like, <laughs> like why, what, you know, like, like life is so much richer when you're around people. Like, like, yeah, you have peers that are your own age, but like you also have intimate close contact with people of every you know time in life and, and there's just this beautiful richness and one of the very first things that we um came into just as soon as we um as soon as we moved back um yeah yeah, so you, that, don't, that you, was, you, um, yeah you don't get that type of interface um any, anywhere else in, in my opinion like that cross cross-generational intergenerational interface because i mean you kind of simply don't have the options not to not to when you're when you're in a rural place you know um and, and when you were talking it sort of made me think like um thinking back to sort of my own like teens um you know i was super into you know being a rural kid i was super into jeeps and dirt bikes and four wheelers and all that kind of stuff right and and i think i actually had a, a, a thread on twitter about this but like jeep jeep culture and, and the boondocks where i grew up was you know uh, a very uh, intergenerational thing like I used to hang out as a teenager uh, in old dudes garages uh, you know drinking beer myself or they were certainly drinking beer and there would be like 16 year old kids working on jeeps and 30 year old dads and 80 year old grandpas you know and there'd be a bonfire going on outside and the old guys were teaching the young guys how to work on their jeeps and then they would go out the next day and you know tear them up in the woods and whatever else and like you just don't like i can't think of another example where you have uh, that sort of bandwidth um and influence uh, for for of people outside your generation you know um and that was very formative for me, I, I don't know. It gives you it gives you confidence to to be able to you know speak with people who are you know more knowledgeable than you, older than you, um, you know what have you. Uh, very confidence boosting. 
Can I can I interject there a little bit? Like, oh, Nate, when you were talking about how when you guys lived in Denver, and you know, your situation was where you're interfacing with other like couples that were the same age or maybe had kids the same age. Or, like, there is such an age sorting mechanism that's almost to the extreme. I mean, mm-hmm. you can look at school, yeah. right? You go through age at like okay second grade third grade and everyone's kind of in the same age cohort but i was even thinking about how okay so dating apps right like when you go on a date i i don't i i don't know you go on a dating app and you're like setting the preferences of like this narrow bandwidth of age and location right and that's like single people of this thing right okay oh, oh and now you're now you're a young couple now you're a young parent and you have kids this age so if you're in an urban area Find other people who are like, you know, like have a kid like exactly that age and like sort yourself into that age group. And like everything is so extremely sorted into these different age groups. Okay. Uh, you have not only you have kids and you have a dog or like what well, it gets like extremely, extremely specific. Right. And yes. you can kind of see the utility of that. It's like, okay, well, let me find other people who identify with where I'm at and you can, you know, uh, my wife and I are about to have a kid. So like, you know, there's, I, we have other friends who are around the same stage and they're like sharing information, super useful, super helpful to have tips from people who are like in about the same stage, but then like take that to the extreme where it's like, okay, you're in some cosmopolitan city with a, a giant population and you're sorted by what neighborhood you live in and your income bracket and your socioeconomic status and where you went to college and what's mm-hmm. you're at in terms of having kids and how kids are. And it's like, you get to, we like get in these super refined, narrow categories. Uh, it seems super, like, like it's super technocratic, right? Like you want to find like the optimum for like your very specific thing right now and what you miss and all that optimized what you guys are alluding to is like, okay, you're thrown in in this like intergenerational mess, right? Where you've got yeah. family, different agents, cousins, half cousins. Like when you talk about your cousins, do you literally mean cousins? Or do you mean like, well, this kid who wasn't even related to us, <laughs> yeah. cousin, or like this guy who was like my uncle, but he's not even in my family, but he like told me how to like rebuild a carburetor. So he's basically like uncle Dwayne who told me how to rebuild a carburetor or whatever. Like you have all that kind of stuff. That messiness, that intergenerational messiness, I think we totally miss in this sort of like super technocratic, modern, cosmopolitan, urban generation of like using apps and technology to dial in exactly what you're looking for at this time, you know, which is a weird position. But I feel like humans have never been in that position before. Like we've never had the power of technology to do that kind of thing. And I'm, you know, yeah, there's like downsides to the the traditional setup with, you know, like we could as well have a podcast about how oppressive all of the sort of traditional stuff is or whatever. I just, I, I, I don't really have a point. I say it's super interesting. And I, I feel like I know, and I think we're all kind of coming from like the same, like kids of the eighties. Yeah. You know? I think Nate, I think you and I are almost exactly the same age where I think we're, we're both 77 yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and so we've really seen, like, like we, we, we grew up without internet and all this kind of, like, when they had that, what's that show? Oh, uh, 
st- Stranger Things or whatever. Something. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like road bikes and, woods, and they and they had telephones with like long curly cords on them, and there was. <laughs> We're like, yeah, that's how it was. You just, you just did that. Oh, shit. that's a fu- it's a fucking ringer. It's like, whoa, oh man, that's that's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and like people are saying, oh, now we've had so many generations of people growing up with like they only know smartphones, and I just I'm like, that's crazy, dude. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah, I'm that's topic, so one of you guys, please get us back on topic. But I just, I think my point is like. Well, modernity and technology has allowed us to get into like an extreme level of uh, age and socioeconomic status stratification where it's totally yeah. possible to live in a world of literally only people who have an eight month old, you know, and yeah. be totally in that group, whatever that is yes. in, uh, you know, uh, a nice neighborhood in D.C., and what are the good coffee shops? And like, that's the world, you know? And what, and, and what does that miss? AC's nostalgia post thing is that connection back to what is lost when we go to that degree of, of, of specialization. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump in with that because I think that, you know, that, um, you know, the idea of hyper specialization hyper sorting you know we're talking about by age and 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 we can pretty much stay by age but it's like there's no incentive to learn about or get along you know with difference in that way you know like whereas in in you know in you know big family uh people live close to each other you're gonna figure it out (laughs) you know there's gonna be uh and and, you know i think about you know makes me kind of come back around to my, my, my grandpa, um, Wayne, who was like a, you, you know, a, a country guy, you know, and then, um, I don't know this firsthand, obviously, but, you know, my mom then went into town, Charleston had a college. That's where my mom went. That's also where my dad went. That's where they met, even though they were from close to the same place. They, you know, they didn't go to high school together. They met in college. And, um, you know, and so, so then my mom, you know, falls in love with this hippie guy. Like my dad was a hippie and um, told you I was going to tie it into some hippie shit. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, Wayne didn't care for that, you know, <laughs> didn't that, that didn't didn't care for that. Like and he and my dad, I don't think really liked each other very much. I don't I don't think my grandpa liked my dad very much. Um, and, uh, my dad is not the kind of person who's just going to be passive about that. Like he's, a, uh, um, he's, he's not going to let things go. He's going to, he's, he, he's going to, he's going to pick and he's going to be in your face. Um, kind of like a, I mean, this <laughs> with a lot of love, kind of like a mosquito, he's a real little guy. Um, but like, he's just like, not gonna back off of it. Um, and so I'm sure there was lots of, of conflict between the two of them. And, and, and I saw some of it, but they figured it out. Right. And, and sort of like, you know, by the time I was around, like they, they could get along. And I think they, they came to respect each other and, and love each other a whole lot, but, you know, but, you know, and they had to do that because they were in, in proximity and, and family still, go. I'm not saying this doesn't happen in families now, but I think, you know, especially when people move, as is so common now, you know, so many people grow up so far, like your, your relationship with your in-laws is sort of, um, you know, you, you can be polite for a weekend or something like that. And it's just, you know, even, you know, they were an hour and a half away, but they were still just so involved in each other's lives that, um, 
you know, and, and, and my dad and my, um, you know, uncle sometimes butt heads and this and that. And, 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 you know, people in a big group like that sort like that aren't sorted by, you know, interest or, or app or whatever, just like, this is our time in life. Or, like you, you just have to figure it out and people do. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, you're, you're bound by place, like in, in a sense you're embracing limits versus, you know, people who sort by app or, you know, uh, can disagree with a, a certain friend's politics and just pick a new friend uh, that thinks exactly like them just as easy because they're all, you know, all available to them. Uh, those, those options aren't available um, to you in a, in a rural place. You know, I think about having this conversation, you know, makes me think about my mom for, for, you know, for whatever reason. So she, you know, she was the only girl out of, out of boys. She was the oldest. She was the farmer's daughter. She had to work all the time. Like didn't, wasn't able to really socialize after school at all. Uh, um, and she, you know, she joined the Grange, which, you know, in, in her time, you know, this would have been like in the, uh, in the seventies, she joined the Grange when she was like, I don't know. It was like 17 or 18 years old. And it was all old ladies. It was like my, my mother who was, you know, 17, 18 years old and all a bunch of old ladies in this little tiny village Grange. And like, that was her social network, you know, like you can't really be, you know, beggars can't be choosers when you're in that situation. And, you know, you have to imagine that she learned a thing or two, you know, with that, with that type of a social network that she wouldn't have otherwise had uh, um, if she was just among her peers, you know? Um, and that sort of also speaks to, you know, again, my social network and, you know, my teens was, uh, you know, a wide ranging age of folks because, you know, there weren't a heck of a lot of options. And, you know, so you kind of congregated and convened around shared interests, um, you know, uh, uh, because you kind of embraced what you had, you know, you worked with what you had. Right. Makes me think of, did you ever listen to this? Uh just this whole conversation, not specifically that point, but you ever listen to Greg Brown, the folk singer, Greg Brown? No. He's a, he's a Midwestern guy, Iowa folk singer. He, he's, he's wonderful. Um, uh, and there's an album live one. It, it's called the live one. Um, and you know, it has songs from other albums, but it's just a really nice live compilation. And there's one called canned goods. Whole album's really good. Spring Wind's a beautiful song off that, but Canned Goods is another song where if you like, I mean, you'll love it. AC, I feel very confident as far as like, you know, your love of nostalgia, like, yeah, but it'll be it'll be right in your sweet spot. But it's, you know, just you know, describing he's an Iowa guy, describing going home to his grandparents, you know, farm in in, in Iowa and just an, an Iowa um snapshot and you know, his grandmother and and, and um and just living amongst you know, cousins and, uh, you know, a big, that was a huge part for us of why we, you know, why we moved back was just to be around, um, you know, be around grandparents and be connected to, you know, rooted to a place in a community. Um, even though communities, quite honestly, I mean, this is, uh, this is a whole can of worms. I don't even like community is kind of a hard thing for me personally. Um, uh, I don't really, know you know how to do it i think you know and i kind of think kind of tying it back to the very very beginning of the conversation you know my parents moved away from their community like it was an hour and a half but an hour and a half significant you know and so our you know like i pl- i went we traveled 
you know, on, on weekends and, you know, pretty often I felt really, I mean, I grew up really close with my cousins and this and that, but not in a day-to-day way. Like it was a separate thing and, and, and living, um, without that buffer and without that separation, like in each other's lives, you know, the way that you described where you're like literally working on projects together, like you're doing, um, like there's the responsibility for, this is how we're running things. We're doing it together as a family. We're not just like doing our own thing and then visiting with each other. I mean, which is great, but like, it's, it's just a really different thing. Um, and there's that, um, and imagining building that, now you know because i do i think about that you know i think about like this farm um and i think about for it to be what it would what it could be um will take more than me (laughs) it'll take more years than i have um and so it's 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 like how do you how do you build how do you rebuild that when it's you know it's it's frayed almost to the point of coming completely apart, but there's still like a memory of that. And how do you build from that memory into, um, into that sort of intergenerational connectivity once again? Hmm. That's the problem because um, it's it's uh, much harder to restore than it is to keep it going. You know what I mean? Like um, um, my cousin runs a farm now with his father, my, my uncle, um, and, and the rest of us um, are off to other things. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and that was sort of the the current in which we swam, you know, and, and I've talked about this in the past. Like, you know, we were encouraged to leave. Uh, we were encouraged. You know, I was the yeah. first, in, first in my whole family to go to college. You know, that was like what you were supposed to do. That was winning. You know, uh, that's the assumption. That's yeah, the assumption. Yeah. And then, you know, then I look back and, and like, man, like, you know, um, my kids don't, my kids don't know their cousins. Like they barely know their cousins. You know, they might see them, you know, a couple times a year. And that like, that like breaks my heart. You know what I mean? Like uh, I had such amazing relationship with my cousins. Say they were my uncles and aunts. Like I, I you know, they're basically second sets of parents uh, for me. And, you know, so once you lose that stuff, man, it's gone. And it's so hard, so hard to get back. You know, it needs to be like a conscious choice and, and, you know, um, so, so more power to it. Like, I think, you know, more people now in the doomer optimism circle are talking about intergenerational living as a, as a desirable thing. You know, I think, I think it is a desirable thing, obviously having lived it and feeling so fondly towards it, but it was, I mean, it was work, man. It wasn't, it wasn't all roses. Like my uncles mm-hmm. and, you know, and their wives used to fight, man. They used to not, you know, there, there were some bouts um, and, yeah. you know, running a family business um, is tough. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's no surprise to anybody. So you can't, you can't have rose colored glasses, but um, you know, I just think of I'm totally switching gears here, I think a little bit, but, you know, just, just from like a child rearing standpoint, right? Like, you know, I don't have my, my parents or my wife's parents are not in close proximity. Like they're not like a phone call away. Hey, I really need a shower or the kids are being tough. Like I need a break. I just need a break tonight. You know what I mean? And it's hard, man. It's hard to be, you know, to raise kid, kids on an Island uh, um, without, you know, that, that easily uh, accessible help, let alone like what the kids are growing, you know, giving up by not having relationships with their parents. But you know, I think about my mom, like my mom, you know, uh, and my dad were able to do like tremendous, amazing things um, that I could never do uh, at my age now because I don't have that resource. Like I don't have 
um, family to drop my kids off with so I can build a barn like my dad did, build a house like, uh, you know what I mean? Uh, um, all of that, all of that is gone. Can I throw out, can I throw out a theory based on like what you guys are talking about now? So, So a lot of this is about recognizing that, like, so rewind 50 years, 75 years or something like that. We're looking at that and we're kind of saying like, oh, look what they had. And that's what's missing now. And like Nate's talking about, he's working his ass off to build, you know, what you guys have at your place now. And a big, probably a big question mark is, are your kids going to be into this? Are they going to want to carry it on? Because you're, you're building something that's way bigger than one person, one lifetime, one something like that. And is it going to carry forward? And it's easy, I think, to get really despondent about that. Because if you think about where we're coming from, where all of the inertia has been to get away from that kind of thing. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing and that we're identifying is the fact that like, the socioeconomic conditions, the technological conditions, political conditions, everything that's going on is like pushing people away from that kind of thing. You know, going back at least 50 years, if not 70 years or longer. And so now we're at that point and the doomer optimism, whatever community is, is, is like, oh gosh, look at what we've lost you know, we're headed towards some kind of a collapse or something like that. So I, to me, like the, the optimistic thing is that the incentives are also at an inflection point, right? Because maybe we're the old farts who in their 40s are going, well, you know, really we had this good thing back in the day and we really should have, you know, and that's going to be like the old hat Thing. Like we're thinking it's like this radical, oh, so countercultural, but maybe that's the old hat thing that we're just, we're, you know, we're not the vanguard. We're slow on the uptake, realizing what's lost and that maybe it won't be that hard as we think it might be for younger people, future generations to kind of take up this kind of thing because the incentives are starting to align. Do you get what I mean? Sure. Like, like we're responding to the collapse of systems. Like if, the, if all these systems that we're living in were just like humming along and working great, you know, maybe we would all just be, you know, we would, we would be, uh, what's his name? Patrick Bateman. We would all just be Patrick Bateman's, you know, just churning it out. <laughs> right. But all that stuff is crashing and we're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. So who knows? Maybe our kids, are going to say, man, thank God my weird-ass dad got a bit of marginal land and, like, reconnected with his family and, like, created this opportunity. You know, even though right now we're like, oh, people hate this and kids hate that and nobody wants – everybody wants to go off to a city and go to college and all this kind of stuff. You know, uh, maybe that's – Maybe it's actually way more optimistic than that. You know, the fact that we're coming along and recognizing this and valuing it. I mean, I I can't speak for you guys, but I can say I've never had an original thought in my life. You know, like how how often do we refer to Wendell Berry? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you want to be simultaneously inspired and and, and depressed at the same time, 
Go read the Sand County Almanac. Yeah. Out of Leopold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Go back and look at Ed Ricketts and John Steinbeck, you know, the log from the Sea of Cortez and all that kind of stuff, and realize that this radical ecological worldview was like fully incubating so long ago, right? You're like, oh my God, how did people not pick up on this? I mean, the round river, the out of Leopold's round, like all that stuff is just that, that it's it, man. It's it, it's it. And, you know, and you can say uh, the unsettling of America was published our birth year, right? 77, hmm. right? Like it's not new. It's not new. It's not new. It just takes a long time for this stuff to marinate its way in, you know? So maybe, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, my wife is due in a month, you know, I have no idea what's going to, we're having a, we're having a boy. I have no idea. Uh, this is all new to me. You guys are ahead of me in this game. I don't know anything about being a parent. I'm like feeling my way through all this. I have no idea if my kid's going to grow up. I, I feel so excited about what we're creating here at our place. And I'm like, I'm so, I can bring up the kid in this environment. This is so great. This is so great. And who knows, he may rebel and hate it and think I'm an idiot. I have no idea. I have no control over that. You know. On the other hand, he could be like, wow, that was really great. And my dad did that shit, you know, just like I was really grateful for my grandfather for taking me down to the, the sewage creek to look for crawl. <laughs> you know, yeah. who knows? Who knows? Like, it's so weird. It's so weird. But I'm bullish. I'm I'm pretty optimistic, actually, on that front, too. I mean, it's it's hard. And sometimes I can, you know, and there's, there's grief and they, and and there's grief and there's mourning. And I think that that's, you know, but that's not incongruent, you know, with sort of hope in any way. Um, You know, because I think that the, 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 the good news, so to speak, is that, you know, the things we, yeah, things have become so frayed and there's a lot of work to do, Um, but they didn't disappear, you know, like they didn't disappear. And there's still a memory. Like I can remember, you know, this is, you know, you talk about that, you, know, you can talk about stories and, um, and there's funny stories and there's big stories, but then there's also like just teeny tiny memories, right? Like I can remember, um, you know, with my grandpa, you know, riding in his truck, I don't really remember what kind of his truck, but it was a bench seat, of course. And, you know, I could sit then in the middle, you know, in a bench seat and he's got the stick shift and the dial radio, you know, the radio that you got to twist to get tuned in, um, you know, and I can just remember driving that and just him like putting his hand around my little boy leg, you know, just like grabbing my knee um, and just that. Um, and then, you know, and then kind of doing the same thing with, you know, you when I'm like with with the boys, you know, like we. Uh, my my father in law, when he passed, he um, we left he left us what's our farm truck now he had a toyota tundra but it had a bench seat too so i remember then miles is six and he sits next to me and putting my hand on his knee and just thinking about how that love is transmitted over generations and and you know that that's not gone it's still there you know we can still do that and i'm i'm pretty optimistic i i think just in terms of our own farm i think both the boys like it pretty well and i don't know what's going to happen and they might choose to go and do whatever and you know they're free to do that and i'm going to um, support them. You know, I'm not going to tell them they have to stay here or anything, but I'm, but I've been really clear that like, I think about you and, you know, I want you to, you know, know that 
this is yours, <laughs> you know, that we're building this together and that this is yours. And that if you choose, you know, this can, this can be a thing that you can build and build on. Um, and I do, I mean, I hope, I hope they do. Uh, I really do. Um, but um, it's okay if they don't, but, um, but there is a gravity, I think that comes with a project like this. Like my, my sister, her family moved from Colorado and they live in town near us now, you know, and they, they moved up here and, um, and my parents just sold their home where we, where we grew up and they moved up here and they live close to us now too. So there's, you know, there's this gravity that seems to be, you know, coming around this place, you know, and what we're doing. Cause we're, you know, maybe there is, you know, in this rootless, in the sense of rootlessness, a recognition of the need for roots again. And so like that, you know, that's that, um, you know, when there's a recognition for that need, kind of like this anxiety. And, and I think a lot of it actually directly was COVID and the insecurity and the chaos of that was like, holy shit. Okay. We like, like, who's our people? What, why the fuck are we a thousand miles away? Like that's mm-hmm. that. Nope. 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 That's not the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, in a, in a, uh, whatever that was, mini catastrophe, whatever, like made you feel real vulnerable. Like it could be like, who knows who knows why are we spread out all over the place why aren't we centralized like why aren't we together with people that we trust that was when my family really made the move to come here it was in, in the wake of that i think it was like it just shook everybody up and like kind of on some level like you know my, my brother's he's he's a few hours away still um but um but not that far and you know it's, it's yeah you want to be together. I, you know, I think I'm, I, I, I'm a addict for looking at silver linings and I think you're spot on with looking at the whole COVID thing and trying to find the outcomes like that. Yeah. Like you're saying where like something hit you upside the head and said like, why aren't you close with the people you love? Or like, what am I doing with my life or how am I, I, and I don't have any specific examples. I don't have any anecdotes to share with that specifically, but I think that these kind of events, I mean, okay. So if you take the doomer optimism thing seriously, where there's like, okay, what's the overall theme is the unsustainability of how everything is operating, which means that different parts are going to break down in different ways in different times. It's all going to be pretty unpredictable. What are the responses going to be? And what do we learn from that? What are the realizations that come from that? And you know, that's hard. Oh, that's the doomer part. The optimism part is like, I mean, how many stories are there of people who really come together in a time of crisis? Like, that's the kind of stuff that makes you think like, what's really important. Maybe that's, mm-hmm. say, you know, but, you know, I think the COVID crisis presents those kind of opportunities for reflection. A lot of other things, you know, I mean, the fact that like inflation's bad now and the cost of stuff at the store is so much more expensive. And it's make people making people think, how can I do more for myself? How can I, could I grow some vegetables in my yard? A small thing like that. How can I, how can I shave off my grocery bill by producing for myself? You know, these are all positive developments, you know? So mm-hmm. there's so much positive that can come from these calamities. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, I don't really have anywhere. I'm, I'm not really going anywhere with that. But. Yeah, I think, um, 
you know, I, I keep coming back to, you know, the for me, obviously, like a very literal sense of place, like, and that's always been like the, the gravity of my life, like, I, um, and Bell Hooks, I think, said this in her book, Belonging, like, she felt like her place, like, bore, uh, bear witness to her life, and like the struggles that she had in her life, you know, and when you when you don't have like that sort of common thing that roots you that common place that roots you like you don't have that companion right that's not a companion you can't see uh you can't see a reflection of yourself in your place you know if you're transient if you're if you're rootless you know and and i try to you know so, so that's what my place gives me like i can see my grandfather in the place like i can see the ditches that he dug you know, like i can see the firehouse that he you know built with the rest of the volunteer fire department you know what i mean like um, when I feel like, you know, I'm shaking off of my foundation, like I'm rooted by this place. And like, if that's what I can, if I can like carry just the tiniest like flame of that uh, on, pass that on to my kids, you know, like this place is a part of you, you are a part of it. Like, you know, your great grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, dug that ditch and built that firehouse and, 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 you know, used to hunt up on the Ridge and, you know, I used to walk this whole, you know, uh, five mile radius with him. Um, and that's a part of you. Like, I'm going to share that with you. And so hopefully when, you know, um, the world gets worse, when we have another type of COVID or some other else, like there's, there's something that they can return to and see uh, a place that bears witness to their struggle and, 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 um, that they can sort of connect with in some way and see like a continuity, like, it can be like their literal and metaphorical rock. Like this is their continuity. And that's kind of what it is. That That's what it is for me. Um, and that's where, yeah. you know, that's where I get my strength. <clears throat> well, and that, uh, yeah, place, um, it makes me, so like our place where we live now is like, um, it was, uh, it's a hundred, it's a sesquicentennial farm. So Emily's family, um, you know, you know, has, has been here for 150 years, but it was one of those, like, like I mentioned earlier, like things spring, like it was hanging by a thread, you know, because it hasn't been, it actually hasn't been farmed by a member of the family. in I don't know, well over 50 years, it was, you know, uh, rented and sublet. It stayed in the family, um, but didn't, you know, wasn't occupied. Um, but you can see one of the neat things, you know, we moved back and, and, and the gentleman who was our neighbor, um, he, he, he could tell us stories because he farmed this place with um, Emily's because he was a cousin of or a nephew of Lance, who was Emily's great grandfather, Zella's father, um, who Lance taught Stanley horsemanship. Right. And so then and then he was you know teaching me and teaching the boys. So it was like it still is like, OK, well, we still were able to make a little bit of that family intergenerational transmission. And you can see, you, know, you can go around the farm and, 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 and we went sometimes and he could tell us like, okay, well, these terraces were built, you know, but from a government program this many years ago. And um, this was a sand mine that we'd all used to come. We'd all used to, you know, and um, when they farm, he told us about when they, you know, when he was a kid, they farmed this place. Um, he helped Lance farm this place. Um, when they started, they were using, you know, horses. Um, they were, they were, they were not using tractors which is just crazy to think about how not long ago that was um, just, just wild. And, you know, talked about the rotations and, um, uh, and, and, and it's just amazing to think about um, 
how much change has happened so quickly in the last hundred years. It's just, it's just, and you can get that sense talking to him as well. Um, just about yeah. how, um, uh, almost bewildering, you know, uh, he found it. Like he, he didn't seem like a bewildered person, but when we really got to talking about it and he, sometimes he'd just shake his head and he could just look out and see a 16 row combine doing the same thing that, you know, he was, um, yeah, just, um, really neat to when you're when you can see that in a place and you can see oh and this was this was where i kind of want to go with that i almost lost my train of thought but when we think of place and 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 like in environmentalism and i've always kind of seen myself environmentalism because naturally i care about places i care about the natural world um and then it lived out in colorado and it's like you know the main ethic of like leave no trace and this idea of like well places are best when not disturbed by people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I contrast that to here and to my experience of being in a place. I'm like, no, places are best when you are interacting with it and you're manipulating it in a way that's good for every. Like, it's like that. I love that stuff. Like you're, you're like, that's, you're producing food. You're living off it. it you're leaving marks. You're literally leaving marks. Um, there's leave no traces bananas from that point of view. Like, yeah, how can you live that way? You can't. And I'm not, I mean, I think wilderness areas are important. I'm not down on wilderness areas. I'm not like saying like we need to cover the globe in, in humans and, and inhabit every area. And so leave no trace is appropriate in certain places. I'm not saying it's not, but just as the, like, that's what it is to be pro environment. Like that's what it means. It's like, yeah. no, I want to, see people taking care of places mm-hmm. by messing with them and learning from them and, and, and loving them and loving them means being in them. Um, and I think that's when you see really intergener like, and then on time scales that are not just, you know, a few years, but like a long, long time we've been here for a decade and it's like, you know, just a drop, just a drop. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets us back to Aldo Leopold's uh, land ethic, right? I mean, you know, and Wendell Berry, you know, Wendell Berry said it takes three generations in a place to know a place and care for a place, mm-hmm. right? It's the same thing. It's a time scale gr- yeah. greater than one person uh, for you to, uh, you know, again, see a reflection of yourself in the land and, vi- and vice versa. Um, you know, it's funny that, you know, the, the break is, uh, that, that connection is broken, right? So I think, of, I often think of this story, right? So getting back to my grandfather, um, you know, he was, <clears throat> he was quoted famously uh, in, in the local history book uh, in the 60s, um, orating a town meeting, right? So, you know, New Hampshire has a town meeting, you know, very democratic process, and, and anybody can orate a town meeting, they can filibuster, they can have their little stump speech. And he fought, viciously, viciously fought the land use ordinances, right? I mean, I think he was quoted in the history book saying, you know, basically, you know, he left uh, Nazi-ridden Europe. Um, He didn't leave Nazi-ridden Europe for this, right? (laughs) To to be told, like, what what you should do on your land. Um, But that's because, like, he knew what was best and the and ultimately that was turned turned down it was it's been you know there, there is now a land use ordinance uh in the town but you know for a long time there was none because you know there was this mutual sense that 
people knew how to care for the land. They didn't, they, you know, they didn't, you didn't need a land use ordinance to say, don't put a McDonald's up, you know, next to this little, you know, um, farm or whatever. Don't mix commercial use with, uh, with residential um, because people sort of had a sense of like, what's right. Like what, what was the proper care of place now, now in like a lot of ways, I'm, I'm happy that there's a land use ordinance, you know, like, because otherwise there would be yeah. like a 200 unit storage unit place uh, uh, that they would plop right next to the family farm. You know what I mean? Like, because mm-hmm. nobody gives a shit anymore, you know, that, that connection is broken. Like landowners haven't owned a piece of property for many generations. Like they're making, they're looking to make a quick buck. And so now we have to have um, sort of this bu- these bureaucratic functions because we have a relationship with place that's broken. Um, yeah. Um, so it's just a, a funny reflection, and, you know, and that speaks to, you know, you mentioned it earlier, Nate, like uh, we used to be a sort of generalist society and now we're a specialist, specialized society. Like, uh, I can't make I can't make decisions about how to govern this town like that needs to be a politician's job or, you know, like uh, I, I can't pick up a hammer and try to build a house like I'm not a professional, like I don't have the appropriate licenses. So therefore, I'm not even going to try like everything, everything is uh, every aspect of our lives is abstracted and once removed uh, and assigned to somebody else who we deem a specialist. And therefore, I don't need to care. Right. I, I don't need to care about that thing. Um, because I assign my care to somebody else that really doesn't have any investment other than an economic investment in that thing. You know, um, yeah. going back to the firehouse example, you know, like they couldn't raise the requisite funds to hire somebody to build a firehouse in the little village that I grew up. So so they uh, literally built it themselves, like farmers and, and, and nobody, backyard, shade tree, carpenters uh, built the firehouse. Like think of... Uh, 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 think of that happening today. Like you can't. It's unthinkable. You know, people. Uh, was, was it to code? Did they build it to code? <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean. Like uh, you, <laughs> you need to first of all ask permission, and then have the appropriate <laughs> licenses, and then you know get every dollar earmarked for it, and, and have somebody else build it for you. Like it's unfathomable to think of taking on that type of project yourself um, because we've sort of offshored it, if you will, uh, um, you know, assign that responsibility to somebody else. So I don't know, that was a bit of a rant. Ass- assign <laughs> that responsibility and then create it. And created like, like you said, Josh, like codes and things like that, because I can still just from people I know around here, I mean, it's not actually that hard to imagine. I mean, man, this is the great way. This, this is the best thing. This is the best thing about being a country person. I think it's like, you just learn to do stuff and you're around people who just like know how to do stuff. Oh, let's weld that thing out of metal that we need to make. That's okay. Let's figure that out. That'll work there. We're going to freaking make it. Let's okay. Um, we're going to build this. We're going to do that. And I love it. Yeah, that's like, the, and the thing is, is that when you do that, you accept the responsibility of if it's badly made, if it fails, mm-hmm. guess who's going to pay the, you know, like you might get hurt. Like you really better get it right. You know, skin in the game, right? It's skin in the, it's totally You're- skin in the game. And like, I'm, I'm lucky that the cows like, are going to get out and you'll be chasing around at midnight. It's no good. <laughs> yeah. So the, my other life, my other work is in water and sanitation development with communities in developing countries. And there's no codes there's no EPA. There's no guidelines and other kind of stuff. It's like, okay, we can build a water treatment system for a village and it's safe to drink the water or it's not like, are you comfortable telling people Yes, give this water to your kid or infant. 
Like, are you comfortable? Would you do that? I mean, most of the time when we, we live in the communities where we're working, so we're drinking the water, like people I care about are drinking the water, like the skin is, uh, and it goes back to Wendell Berry. Honestly, it's like that. It's he calls it like there's, he has some term for it, which is like the principle of subsistence or something like that, which is about being willing to live by the technologies that you advocate. And one of my, one, one of the many criticisms that I have for a technocratic society is this sort of like, well, here's like what we do in our world of affluent people. And here's what we offer to like poor people or whatever. And mm -hmm. so many of the people who are innovating stuff or poor people don't live by those things. Right. Yeah. So those things suck. Right. Yeah. It's um, like, it's like how, it's like how they don't, you know, like the people who develop all these uh, smart phone apps and everything like that don't let their kids have smartphones you, do you know do you know the area of the country that has the fastest growth rate of like waldorf and alternative schools that don't let kids have screens i guess it's the bay area based on the lead up exactly <laughs> all of those silicon valley people know the damage that's being done yeah and they're ahead of that and they're saying okay yeah. our kids are having screens and stuff but for, yeah, for all the chuds out there, yeah. let them have uh, screens and all these these things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think I interrupted somebody in the middle of an important point. But, you know, the, the skin in the game and living by the technologies that you advocate, I feel like that's that's a core principle. It's got to be a core principle. Yeah. And definitely our, grand, our, our grandparents got that for sure. Right? Like, they... By default, I mean, they had to. Like, for them, it wasn't yes. we're sort of choosing, but for them, it was like, no, this just got to work. Like, you know, either it does or it doesn't. We don't get through the winter if this shit doesn't work. Yeah, you're not going to call somebody. Yeah. Right. Call call the specialist to come and fix that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, probably my fault. We're probably rambling in a lot of bunch of different directions. Do you want to try to, like, tie it back to the grandfather theme? and rap yeah. yeah i think yeah i mean I, we, we, I i've had a lot of fun going in all different directions um you know i think if we can maybe try to funnel it back into a close it's sort of like uh you know what 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 are we taking away from our formative experiences with our grandparents with how we how we grew up and like how does that inform your personal brand of doomer optimism i guess if that can be like sort of the final sort of the final question. I think we've talked, we've sort of talked about that already, but if you can sort of summarize, summarize your point, I think that would be a good way for us to wrap it up. Absolutely. I don't know if you, you, any of you feel prepared to start because I don't. <laughs> I, I'm happy to go with that. I'm happy to go with that because I got to give props to my grandmother, my one remaining grandparent still alive. She's not, she just turned 95 last month. She might outlive all of us. I have no, she might be unkillable. She might be, <laughs> I don't know. So, so my anecdote, so she grew up uh, on a small farm back in the holler in West Virginia during the depression. And, you know, they had hogs and chickens and they grew vegetables and tobacco and they had orchards and they did the whole thing. And my, my story about her is that she grew up on the farm and she didn't start riding the school bus into town to go to school until high school. And when she did, she started riding the bus into town. She went to high school. She went on the first day. That was fine. She went on the second day. People started to look at her a little bit kind of weird. 
She went on the third day and the kids were like, what's going on with you? You've worn that dress for three days in a row. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my school dress. And they're like, yeah, okay. And she's like, yeah, I got a dress for school. I got my Sunday dress, which is my nice one. And I've got two work dresses that get messy when I'm working at home. And one's usually dirty and one's clean. This is my school dress. And they were like, oh. And they were like, no, no, no. You need to be wearing new clothes every day when you go to school. Like, what's going on with this wearing the same thing every day? And she, and she, I remember her telling me the story. And she said, oh, that's when I figured out that we were poor. Because I only had one set of clothes to wear at school. And I didn't know you were supposed to wear new clothes every day and all that kind of thing. You know, it didn't make any sense to her. Right. And that's how she figured out that they were poor because she's like, we lived through the depression. We didn't have any money, but we had plenty of food. We had a big garden. We had an orchard. We had hogs and all this kind of stuff at Christmas time. Like her dad had like this real old threshing machine. He would take around and thresh other people's grain, make a little bit of money. And then uh, Christmas time, he would go and buy a giant tub of peanut butter and a big bag of oranges and that's what that those were their Christmas presents, right? So she figured she was rich <laughs> until she went to school and figured out that she didn't have new clothes to wear every day or whatever. And that that was the definition of being poor, you know. And uh, yeah, so I was just like, well, yeah, like what's actually wealthy? What's actually poor? I mean, I feel like she had a pretty good considering the circumstances of the depression. And uh, yeah, so that's my that's my grandmother anecdote. It's awesome. It's a great story. What about you, Nate? Well, that you know, I gotta, I gotta jump on that because it's just like a, you know, it's a question like, what makes a good life? You know, um, I mean, that's that's the question. It's such a a vital question, and you know, I think a lot of people. You know, I'm guessing there's a lot of people who could, they probably wouldn't listen to this. They probably wouldn't be drawn to it. But if they were, if this was played at them, <laughs> they, they'd be like, yeah, well, the, you know, a lot of nostalgia for, a, you know, a hard scrabble life, you know, a lot of scrabble, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of hard work. And, um, you know, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, you know, and um, there's a lot of comforts, um, you know, in, in, in the city in the city there's a lot of comforts and not having to work to not having to do things for yourself and in specializing and things like that and we've talked today a lot about um i think having in common like a, a sense of nostalgia and looking back at that um and it doesn't take much for a good life you know i think that is a thing that we have really forgotten doesn't take that much for a good life. I really don't think so. I mean, I, I've got too much in my life right now. Like my life would be better with less. Um, I'm trying to get rid of shit. Um, it's, you know, we've come to expect like, yeah, it's, it's exactly what you said with, you know, you got to have a different clothes, different set of clothes every day of the week. That's a good, like, why, who, who gives a fuck? Um, <laughs> like, like, really? Like, what sacrifices is important to make for that? You know, like, what do you want to sacrifice? What do you want to pay for with your time and money? You know, mm -hmm. so that you can have 
a, you know, a different set of clothes every day of the week or <laughs> nowadays, you know, a different set of clothes every day of the month or whatever. Um, you know, I think a, a different set of clothes every day would be very poor right now. Um, if that's all you had, um, you know, it's like, how much is enough? Mm-hmm. And that to me gets to the question, this whole, you know, what we talk about all the time, you know, in, in Doomer Optimism in this conversation is, you know, how much is enough? Can we actually say enough is enough? Do we even have it in us to say, you know, this is enough. This is a good life. I don't need more. I don't need more. Uh, that just is like a foreign idea. That's like a, something that, I don't know, it's something deep within us, this 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 drive more, more, more. Um, but to stop and say, yeah, the, but don't need more. This is all right. This is a good life. And another theme, you know, that, that Wendell, he beats on that drum. It's appropriate. I think we're talking about him a lot in an episode that's kind of like about grandfathers, you know. <laughs> um, he seems like, in my mind, he's like a spiritual grandfather. Um, it's Papa Wendell there. You know, yeah. You know, things, you know, it's like the um, value of hard work and the importance of hard work and and um, how, you know, that's like not a bad thing. You know, you, something you do with your body that, you know. But now, we, you know, now instead we'll, we'll go to the gym and see if we can lift, you know, hundreds. I do. I mean, I work out right here and like lift a bunch of weights and do these things because we don't work hard. So we need to make our body work hard so that we're not unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. Like we live insane. Like our lives are insane. They really are. Um, <laughs> like we've really lost the plot here people, <laughs> for the last few years. Like we totally lost the plot. And so I just bring it back. It's like, well, what is a good life? And, you know, you could look back and yeah, there's problems. And, and yeah, I think you referenced this at the beginning. It's not saying the past was perfect, right? Not saying that like change didn't need to happen, but I think that, you know, uh, I can remember, I can remember life the way my grandparents lived it. And I can remember a good life. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a, change is important there were things in that era certainly that need to be changed but i think we got a little carried away and like i said i think we lost the plot a little bit mm-hmm. and you know i think we can back up and reevaluate and need to reevaluate given resource constraints that are going to happen in cultural conflicts and things like that like what's important you know and what do we need not need to waste our time and effort with anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good call. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot. I um, I guess I would say, you know, sticking with the theme, doom or optimism, right? So my, my personal flavor of doom, you know, is hyper intimate, right? Like, so I look back at, you know, what uh, what I had growing up and, and what I have now, and, and I sort of like I beat myself up quite a bit, you know, like, oh man, look at look at the way I've got swept away. Like, look, look at what I've done um, to, to move away from something, you know, in hindsight, that was, that, that I think is, was truly, you know, objectively a good thing. And, you know, I often ask myself, like, what, what would my grandfather think of me now? You know, my grandfather passed away in 2013. Um, and, you know, he, I think he would be tremendously proud. You know, I, I've made peace with that. I think he would be very, you know, reassuring. You know, I think, um, he would be thrilled that I think about 
this place that he in many ways created, uh, literally like terraformed, as I described before, like this place that he literally created for his family, for his offspring. Um, I think it would be tickled to death that like I use that place as my gauge in life. Like it's like it's it's the thing to which I measure everything else in my life, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, and it's also a refuge. Um, so I think he would be I think you'd be proud of me. Um, and I think you would always, you know, I think you would always say you, ha- you have a home, right? You have a home. And, and I kind of joke about this on Twitter. You know, I think I, I can't remember somebody did the, the post about like, what's your your zombie apocalypse team or whatever. And, and I was tagged on it. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll also be the scout because like, I know, I know exactly where I'm going. Like, I'll take you, I'll take you out with me. Like that place still mm-hmm. exists. You know, I made the joke like, you know, I know exactly which bridges to blow up after we cross them. You know what I mean? Um, that That is literally like it's literally my optimism. And um, that play, I'm very fortunate to have that place still exist. You know, my brother has made a conscious move back there. You know, he's right back there in the little village uh, raising his family there. And so there, there's continuity there for me. And, you know, it really just represents like how powerful of an influence a place can have on a people, you know what I mean? Um, it has a very, yeah. very powerful influence on myself. And so I try to spread that gospel, you know what I mean? Like I literally try to evangelize, um, you know, that on Twitter, that's that's what I that's what I do the nostalgia posting for because it tickles something to me and because, you know, maybe it tickles something in somebody else too, you know, to, to inspire them to have that same uh, type of connection. So that, that's my doom and that's my optimism. Um, I think we, we we covered the gamut. Hopefully, people people find this sort of interesting. You know, I certainly enjoyed having this conversation. You know, uh, hopefully, it sort of yeah, gives yeah. people a peek to uh, the types of folks we are, and you know, and how we put ourselves forward on, on Twitter and everything else. And you know, I think it really has it really has shaped our worldview in, in so many different ways, like how, how we how we experienced our formative years and the mentors that we had during those years, you know, make, make us the doomer optimists, optimists that we are today. Right. So um, I think, I think at the very least it was, it was worthwhile to, to yammer on with you guys. I really appreciate the conversation um, and maybe we can pick it up and we'll do some, uh, do some more Grammy talk. We'll do Grammy talk next time. Nice. That sounds good. I knew, I knew I'd have a good time talking with the two of you. I knew. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks a bunch. Ooh.